Matthew 13. We'll read verse 1 through 9, then we'll come back and continue to make our way. We'll get through these first 23 verses here this morning. It starts off in verse 1, and it reads, On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And a great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into the boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed. Some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some one hundredfold, sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's so important to remember the context of what's going on in Scripture. And chapters 11, 12, and 13 are all happening during the same day or same week, same season, if you would. In the beginning of verse 1, it tells us, On the same day Jesus went out of the house, and now he sits down by the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, which is a very large lake. This is the same day in which in chapter 12 we see the Pharisees claiming that Jesus' power comes from Satan himself, from Beelzebub. This is the same day in which his own brothers and his mom don't understand him and believe he's besides himself. Perhaps he's going crazy. Perhaps he's taking it too far. Jesus has had a difficult and an exhausting day, so now he retreats out of the house, away from the multitudes, and he just goes down and sits by the Sea of Galilee. And I love it when Scripture shows us the humanity of Jesus Christ. I'm sure I'm not the only one. You have a difficult day. You've had an insane day, and you just shut the noise out. You go to the beach You go to a lake, you go to the Everglades or wherever your spot is, a park, and you just want to sit down in stillness, quietness, and sort of decompress everything that's going on here. And we see Jesus just having one of these days. He sits down by the Sea of Galilee. Some of us have been there in Israel, one of the most beautiful places in Israel, and he just wants to sit down by the lake and just relax and be at peace. But we see his peace and his time alone to reflect didn't last very long. The multitudes that were pressing against the house, now they go, they find him, and they're gathered to him. He gets on a boat, he sits down, and now the whole multitude is standing on the shore facing him. We saw his humanity in verse 1, and now we see his love and grace for the multitudes in verse 2. I'm sure none of you struggle with this, but when I have difficult days, I can be a bit short and a bit snappy. And Jesus, he's retreated from the multitudes. He's tired. The Pharisees don't understand him. His brothers don't understand him. His own mom doesn't understand him. And yet the multitudes come. He doesn't snap at them. He doesn't give them sarcastic remarks. But he just prepares himself for yet another sermon, another Bible study. 
He gets on the boat, perhaps it's Peter's boat or James and John's father's boat. He goes out to the lake a little bit and now he uses this boat as his pulpit, as his stage platform, if you would. And for us to remember the context, this isn't a 20-foot contender or 60-foot sea hunt. This is a 15-foot wooden dinghy that he's standing on. This is his platform that gets pushed out a little bit, basically an oversized canoe, and he begins to share this sermon with them. In verse 3, it says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying... This word parable, it's a Greek word, the Greek word parabole or parabalo, which means throwing besides, throwing besides, throwing alongside of something. And what Jesus is going to do is give a story, and besides this story, there is a deeper spiritual truth. He would give them a very simple story that's easy to remember, but then it was up to the hearer if they would want to dig in and search out the deeper spiritual truth attached to it. It's been said that parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And he starts off this parable saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. In Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4, verse 3, Mark says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. That word listen, there's an exclamation point behind it. And if you study the Greek a little bit, we see that this word listen is in the present imperative tense. Which means that this word listen was spoken from Jesus to the multitudes as a continuous habitual command. He's saying you need to listen and keep on listening and keep on listening to what I'm trying to tell you. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but in verse 10, the disciples are going to ask Jesus, why are you now speaking in parables? And we'll look at that a bit more in depth, but it's remember to remember the context. Remember the context. Context is always king. In chapter 11, we saw that Jesus' reputation was that the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised from the dead. This is the reputation of Jesus Christ in chapter 11. In chapter 12, Jesus heals multitudes of people. Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. And Jesus heals the one who's brought to him that's demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And yet, what's the Pharisees' reaction to these miracles? Chapter 12, verse 14, they went out and now they plot against him how they might destroy him. What? Jesus is healing people. The fruit of his ministry is not seeking money, not robbing, not stealing, not sexual misconduct, not at all. The fruit of the ministry of Jesus is healing people, loving people, and asking for nothing in return. And yet the Pharisee's heart grows harder and harder. And in chapter 12, verse 23 and 24, we see the two different responses to the miracles and the words of Jesus Christ. And here we begin with a bit of self-reflection. What is our response to Jesus Christ and to his word? In verse 23 of chapter 12 of Matthew, it tells us, All the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? 
One response to Jesus and his word is to be amazed, to worship, to say this is the Son of God. Sadly, the Pharisees' response says, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees' response is not to be amazed, but the heart of the Pharisees simply grew harder. It grew colder. They were not wanting to listen to Jesus. They were not wanting to hear him out. Instead, they just wanted to cast blame at Jesus. They just continued to harden their hearts, and now they're passing ill judgment on Jesus Christ. This is why he now begins to teach the parables in chapter 13 with this present imperative, this continuous, habitual command to listen and keep on listening to what I am telling you. We see the same miracles and yet two different responses. We're going to hear the same parables and we're going to see two different responses. It's been said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The, the very same sun, depending on the substance, depending on the heart, it can harden or it can melt. Where are we at today? And God willing, each of us, when we hear this parable of the sower and the seed, we say, Lord, I want to have good ground. Lord, may my heart be soft. May my heart be ready and tender towards you. I don't know anyone that hears the parable of the sower and the seed and says, I want to have that rock hard heart. I want to be filled with thorns and rocks and birds eating away everything. I've never heard anyone say that. So I believe James chapter 1 Verse 21 and 22 is so key for us if we truly do want that soft heart. Let's turn there. James chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. I'm going to reference this verse at least three or four times this morning. Because again, I believe it is the key for us to have that good soil. That soft, that deep, and that singleness of heart and love soil. James chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. It says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, family, if we are the one who's unwilling to lay aside our filthiness, if we are the one who's unwilling to lay aside our wickedness and our pride, we will be unable to receive the implanted word, much less a parable. We need to say, Lord, I, I am broken. Lord, I am a sinner. Lord, I am wicked. Will you help me? David Brown, he tells us that parables serve the double purpose of revealing and concealing. They present the mysteries of the kingdom to those who know and relish them, though in never so small a degree in a new and attractive light. But to those who are insensible to the spiritual things, yielding only as so many tales some temporary form of entertainment. You see, some of us, we come to church to be entertained. We come to church to feel a little bit better about ourselves, feel a little bit holier. Maybe we come to church so that we feel like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. 
Maybe you came here, maybe more at the 9 than the 11. You came here, right? Pray a couple prayers for Tua, for Hill, for Waddle's injury. And, and then we go and we watch the game afterwards. But to those that desire to hear the word of God, we come to seek him. We come to get deeper. Lord, speak to me. Lord, reveal yourself to me. Warren Wiersbe, he says, a parable starts off as a picture that's familiar to all the listeners. But as you carefully consider the picture, it becomes a mirror in which you see yourself. And many people do not like to see themselves. This is, explains why some of our Lord's listeners quickly became angry when they heard the parables and even tried to kill him. But if we see ourselves as needy sinners and ask for help, this mirror now becomes a window which we can see God and his grace. To understand a parable and benefit from it demands honesty and humility on our part. And many of our Lord's hearers lacked both honesty and humility. May we lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. We can consider the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 11. He says, O Lord, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist not only heard the word of God, but he made the choice and the decision to take the implanted word and now hide it deep within his heart. Verse 4 through 8, Jesus now gives us the parable. He says, And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. Remember, he's on the boat. This is his platform. He's sharing the sermon, and this is the whole sermon. As he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on the stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30. Many of us know this as the parable of the sower, but does the sower or the seed ever change? Open book test. No, it doesn't. There's only one different variable here that's different in four different ways. The soil. So this parable would be more aptly called the parable of the soils. And that's where we ask ourselves, Lord, where is my heart today? What kind of soil do I have today? The first one is the wayside. The wayside. This would be a pathway that would be in between the crops. This pathway would be dirt, but it would be so compacted that now it is hard and the seed cannot penetrate it. The dirt is just too tough, so the seed simply just sits on top where it's easy pickings for the birds of the air to come and devour the seed. The second type of soil, it's the stony places. Here we see shallow ground, fertile ground, but it is so shallow. There's a quick and immediate response in the seed, but it very quickly dries out from the sun and its heat because the seed was unable to take root. We can consider Jesus, how he tells us that we need to be the wise man that digs deep and puts our house on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It takes work 
to dig deep. It takes work to have those roots go down deep and attach ourselves to Jesus Christ and his word. The third type of ground, it's the thorny places. Here, the seed grows, but there are other things growing with it. Some commentators say this ground is fertile, but too fertile. There's too many things growing at the same pace, which eventually the weeds will overgrow and choke out the seed. I don't know how many of you are gardeners here today, but I don't, many of us, our gardens, we're great at gardening weeds. And our front lawns, they're filled with weeds. And I'm a sower of weeds, right? Because what does it do to grow weeds? Nothing. You just pour water and all sorts of different beautiful things pop up. But in order to have that beautiful grass or to have that beautiful garden, it takes so much work and labor. It's the same thing within our hearts. There's a certain amount of work and labor to make sure there's not other competing loves growing at the same time. Finally, we see the good ground. This ground is fertile ground, which is not too hard. It's not too shallow. And it is single-hearted, single-minded. It is not filled with weeds. And this good ground can yield a crop of 100, of 60, or of 30. Then Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's been said, especially amongst us Hispanics during Christmas, a way to a man's heart is through his, through his stomach. Well, we've all been there. But here Jesus shows us that a way into a man's heart is through his ears. It's what we're hearing. It's what we're listening to. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And once again, we see this Greek tense of the present imperative. Jesus says, let him hear in a continual, habitual command. Jesus is saying, those of you who have the capability of hearing sound waves ought to pray, ought to pray and pay careful and close attention to the meaning of these sound waves. Parents, I know I'm not the only one here. You know what, what I go through. You know what we go through. I tell my son, hey, I want you to go to your room. I want you to put your clothes, put them in a dirty hamper. I want you to take a bath, put on your PJs, and then come and get me, play and come and get me. What does my son's receiving of all those sound waves hear? Go to your room and then do whatever you feel like. Go to your room. After that, it's a free-for-all. You can play with your toys. You can start fighting your brother and sister. You can start doing pull-ups on the bunk bed. You can do whatever you want to do in the room. They have the capability of all the sound waves going in and hitting the drum, but there's no listening. How, how about husbands and wives here? The wife is giving a steady stream of sound waves, but the husband's watching TV or on his phone, and then all of a sudden he hears, are you even listening to me? And we think, that's a weird way to start a sentence. Such a strange way to start a sentence. Because what's happening is the husband has all the capabilities of hearing the sound waves and hitting the drum and shaking, but we're not listening. We're not listening. Charles Spurgeon, he says, there are many who have ears who do not hear to any real purpose. There's the physical act of hearing, but they do not hear in the heart and in the mind. It's a very different thing to have an impression on the drum of the ear and to have an impression on the tablet of the heart. He that has ears to hear, 
let him hear. Jesus oftentimes would finish his parables like this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And for us as believers, this is a huge warning. Because Jesus wrote seven letters to seven different churches in the book of Revelation. And do you know how he ended every single one of those letters? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the angel has to say to the seven churches. We have to be ready. We have to be careful. Are we listening to God and his word? Or are we simply hearing the noise? Our eardrums are shaking and feeling the sound waves. Vance Havner, he says, a lot of Sunday morning Christians want to sit down with folded hands and listen to a mild discourse from the teacher of Galilee. They need to be aroused from their stupor by a vision of the flaming eyes of Christ on the candlesticks. Some of us have ears, period. Hearing we hear not. We sit at church looking but not listening. Oh, God, grant us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and eyes to behold what the Lord of the lampstands is bidding us repent or else. We spend so much time and money learning how to speak when we need to learn how to listen. It's so true. There are, there's a myriad of YouTube videos on how to be a better public speaker how to seal the deal, how to be better understood, how to demand presence in a room. But what we truly need to learn is, Lord, teach me to listen. Lord, teach me to listen. It happens all the time in a Bible study. Our mind is going in a bunch of different places. I've seen it in pastor's conferences. There's pastors at pastor's conferences, and they're on their phone, they're texting or tweeting, or they're on social media, and they're not listening at all to the sermon. And if that happens in pastor's conferences, I'm not that dumb. I know it happens today, this morning. It happens in church services all the time. We come to church just thinking that the sound waves will reach our heart, but that's not the way it works. We need to receive the sound waves and then say, Lord, help me to hear. Help me to listen. Back to the context here. This was Jesus' closing to his sermon. He gets on the boat, they push him out, he gives the parable that we read, then he closes and saying, he who has ears to hear, amen, worship team, why don't you come up and close in song? And that was it, he dismissed. This was the end of the sermon. And some crowds left that morning, most of the crowds left that morning perhaps feeling good, perhaps feeling entertained. Yeah, I'm a farmer, I know what he's talking about, I know exactly what he's talking about. I hate those birds, let's shoot them out of the air, right? Some perhaps leave critical. Man, I don't know what's up with Jesus. He's starting to lose it. That sermon didn't hit me the same way. I don't know what's going on with him. Some leave being annoyed at the message or the messenger. He's going to tell me about farming? This guy's a carpenter from Nazareth that's not hanging around with a bunch of fishermen. I'm the farmer. What does he know? What is he talking about? But notice the difference of the disciples of Jesus Christ and everybody else. You see, everybody else, they heard the parable and they simply left. But what do the disciples of Jesus Christ do in verse 10? They come to him and they say to him, why do you speak to them in parables? You see, family, the difference between the multitudes and the crowd and the disciples of Jesus Christ is that disciples of Jesus Christ draw near to Jesus and ask him questions. Are we doing that? 
Does our Bible study time only happen on Sunday morning? Or do we spend time on our own drawing near to him? Do we spend time on our own asking him questions? The multitudes, they just left. Oh, good sermon. I rated a 7 out of 10 or whatever the case may be. But the disciples, they draw nearer to Jesus and ask him questions. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. We get a great promise in James chapter 4, verse 8. It tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Once again, away from the wickedness, away from the filth, with meekness and purity, receive the word of God. And this is why it's all about not our lips, but where our heart truly is at. I'm sure I'm not the only one. You have a friend that comes to you and asks you for advice. You really pray on it. You chew on it. You think about it. And then you give them your best heartfelt advice. And what do they respond? Nah, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. Their lips said, hey, I want your advice. But what did their heart say? You're not telling me what I want to hear. So I'm just discounting it. That's why in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Because that heart, it's filled with that wickedness. It's filled with that sin. They're given that option to draw near to the Lord, but we'd rather hold on to our sin or our wickedness or our pride. You see, drawing near to God and walking away from our sin is two sides of the same coin. Our God, he's a holy God. He is a pure God. And the only way we draw near to him is by turning away from our sins. If we're unwilling to turn from our sins and our filth and our wickedness, there's no drawing nearer to the Lord. William Barclay, he says, The parable conceals truth from those who are either too lazy to think or too blinded by prejudice to see. It puts the responsibility fairly and squarely on the individual. It reveals truth to him who desires truth and it conceals truth from him who does not wish to see the truth. All those that stayed, that drew near to Jesus and asked, we're going to see they're going to get the answer and then some Verse 11, first Jesus answers their question of why are you speaking to them in parables. Verse 11, he says, because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing, you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing, you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes 
they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. A few things to look at within this portion. In verse 11, we see Jesus saying, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And this word mystery, we find throughout the New Testament. And a mystery in the Bible is not a type of Sherlock Holmes puzzle that we need to solve with fancy music in the background. A mystery is a spiritual truth that has been imitated but not fully revealed in the Old Testament. But now within the Word of God in the New Testament, it is simply defined for us. This is just a few of the mysteries in the New Testament. One of them is found in Ephesians chapter 3, and it's the mystery of the body of Christ. There's a certain mystery in the body of Christ in Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 5. The mystery of the body of Christ that once we are saved, we become a part of the body of Christ. That's not found in the Old Testament, but within the New Testament, it gives us this mystery. Another one is found in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. It is the mystery of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's just a handful of individuals in the Old Testament that have the Holy Spirit come upon them, but not indwell them. Yet for us New Testament believers, we are given the mystery and the blessing that if we are saved, we're given a measure of the Holy Spirit and we can ask, we can seek, and we can knock and He will fill us afresh and anew. That it doesn't have to be one or two believers, it's all of the body of Christ that gets to have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. One last example of a mystery is the mystery of the rapture. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 15. Some, they say the word rapture is not in the Bible. Neither is the word trinity or nativity, all these other things. But this word rapture, it's the word raptus, where we get our word rapture, not raptor, although my son likes dinosaurs, but rapture. And some say it doesn't, it's not in Scripture, but there in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us this is a mystery. Not everyone will die, but some will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So that's just a few of the mysteries found in the New Testament. In verse 12, Jesus repeats this when he gave the parable of the talents. To him who has, more will be given to him in abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Jesus is telling us that if we are faithful and humble and open to him, he's going to give us more and more and more of himself. He's going to give us more and more and more of his truth. He's going to give us more and more of these talents to multiply for him and his kingdom and his glory. But to the one that does not have, to the one that has that one talent and hardens his heart and is critical of the master, it tells us that the little that they have will be taken away from them. And this is a warning to us. We've seen it throughout the book of Matthew. There is a different amount of punishment 
compared to the responsibility we've been given and how much of the word of God we have heard. Jesus, he damns certain cities throughout Galilee where he grew up, where he lived, where he did miracles, where he shared the word because their, hard, their hearts were only harder and harder for it. But for these small towns or bigger towns, bigger cities that he gave just a tiny bit about his word and they completely repented, he says the more that's been given to you, you're going to be held to that stricter judgment. In verse 13 he says, therefore this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus tells his disciples, guys, they've seen my miracles They've heard my word, and yet they ascribe the power to Satan. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the word, and yet they say, I'm besides myself. They're not going to hear my word and harden their hearts, so now I'm going to speak to them in parables. There's going to be less of a weight and responsibility upon them. David Guzik says, parables are an example of God's mercy towards the hard-hearted. These parables were given in the context of the Jewish leaders building rejection against Jesus Christ and his work. In this sense, they were examples of mercy given to the undeserving. It's a little scary when we consider how much of God's word we've heard. Have you ever sat back and considered that? How many hours of teaching we hear a year, times two years, times how many years you've been saved? We're going to be held responsible for all that we've heard. Are we hearers of the word or are we doers of his word? In verse 14 and 15, this is found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. So not only are the parables given as this picture that becomes a mirror, that becomes a window into seeing God's word. Not only are these parables given as an act of mercy to these hard-hearted people, but these parables are given to fulfill the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Finally, verse 16 and 17, Jesus, he, after saying all this reason, he puts that to the side and he looks at the disciples and he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you're here this morning and you understand the parables. You understand God's word. May we not grow hard-hearted or prideful or look down at those that don't understand it. But may we glorify our Father and his grace in heaven all the more. We don't deserve to see. We don't deserve to be able to hear. We know John 15, 5, he tells us, without me, you can do nothing. If we're here, forget all that other stuff. Just be grateful and thankful, Lord Thank you for opening my eyes. Lord, thank you for opening my ears so that I can understand. Perhaps you've heard a message that you've heard a month ago or six months ago or a year ago, but you were hard-hearted towards the things of the Lord. And now you hear and you say, wow, what a dynamite message. That was incredible. What changed? Same message, same recording. You heard it before, but now our heart is humble and meek and open to the Lord. We've laid aside that filthiness and overflow of wickedness so we can receive with meekness the implanted word. Finally, verse 18, the parable of the sower now explained. 
Remember, Jesus, he gives the sermon. He says that those, let, uh, let all who have ears to hear, let them hear. Dismisses everybody. Everybody else, they leave. The disciples, they draw near to Jesus. And now he explains the whole entire thing for them. Verse 18 and 19. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. We see here what is the seed. The seed is the word of the kingdom. Luke chapter 8 verse 11 makes it super simple. It says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Back to Matthew 13 verse 19. We'll read through it and then we'll finish off. It says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches it away. What was sown in his heart? This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. First, we see the sower. It's not only Jesus Christ, but each and every one of us should be sowers. Each and every one of us should be taking the word of God and throwing it out there for our family, our friends, our co-workers, and the world around us. And this should give us comfort. Because number one, the sower does not get a 100% return on his sowing. Sometimes we get exhausted. Sometimes we get bummed out. Man, I'm sharing the word with someone I love, and they're not accepting it. They're not taking it. Not even Jesus got 100% return on his sowing investment. But we can trust in the power of the word. We can trust in the seed. Even today, they've dug within Egypt and the pyramids. There's different digging sites, archaeologists working in Israel, and they find ancient dates. They find ancient seeds. They find ancient wheat. And they take this seed, which is dried out and hard. You hit it with a hammer, and it dissolves into dust. But if they give it water, and they put it in the dirt, and it germinates, they're able to sow and reap ancient crops. This is seed that's been sitting around for centuries and yet it's still able to give fruit today. Know that the word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Does it matter how the sower throws the seed? If it goes underhand, does it matter? If it goes overhand, does it matter? Behind the back, between the legs, does it matter? All that matters is that the seed is going out and now it's up to the soil. How is it going to be received or not? Sometimes we can get so consumed with our methods that we fail to actually give the word of God. I love Pastor Bill Gallatin. and he jokes around about Jesus. He's here. He's on a boat. He uses the boat as his pulpit and his platform. He shares the word and he closes. That's it. He says that Jesus all of a sudden created an eclipse to dim the lights on the Sea of Galilee. Did he cause a fog and mist to roll down the hills to set all of the people in the mood? 
No. He's just giving the word of God and that's it. Now it's up to the person, their pride, their humility, whether they're going to receive it or not. For the parents here, don't be so consumed. How do I share the word with my 5-year-old or my 10-year-old? How do I do the perfect devotional with the family? Just continue to sow the seed. Speak the truth in love. It'll be up to their hearts how they receive it. Now, may we be good examples. May we not just be hearers of the word or sowers of the word, but may we be doers of God's word. And it's the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. God's word is always apt to teach for whatever season that we're in. Whatever year that we're in, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. One of my mindsets behind my studying and preparation and teaching is to try to shower the church with as much of God's word as possible. Because God's word is going to cleanse you, it's going to feed you, and it's going to grow you. My analogies, my jokes, they may make you laugh. They make you might be ashamed of your pastor, right, or ashamed of me. But that's not going to do anything for you. But God's word, it's going to cleanse you. It's going to feed you. It's going to be that mirror to reveal to you where you're at. Shower one another with the word of God. Verse 19, now he comes to the first dirt, this wayside. This pathway that is so hard and compacted that the word of God is sitting on top and now the birds of the air come. He says the wicked one comes and he snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. Some may look at this and say the problem is that he did not understand it. Which indeed is the problem in verse 19. We may think he needs to study more. He needs to search the scriptures more. But who were the people that understood God's word more than anyone else in the context of the scripture? The Pharisees and Sadducees. And yet understanding is not about this. It's all about this. It's all about humbly asking, seeking, and knocking. But those who continually harden their hearts towards God allow Satan himself to come and snatch away the seed. This ground is so compacted and so hard, the seed just can't penetrate through the heart. And we see this warning throughout Scripture to not harden our hearts. That's one of the two things that happens when we hear God's Word. We either soften our heart and we hear it and we receive it, or we harden our hearts. It's the two things that happen. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. What's the context here? The children of Israel in the wilderness. Did they not see miracles? More miracles than any other generation. And yet they hardened their hearts. We can consider Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It tells us to keep, that is to guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. To take a step back and say, Lord, am I hardening my heart? Am I hardening my heart towards you? Is there bitterness? Is there anger? Is there resentment towards you? Lord, Lord, what's going on? May we allow God to soften our hearts. Verse 20, now we see the stony ground. He says, he who received the seed on the stony places... 
That is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. You see, the issue here isn't that someone received the word and immediately does something about it. The issue is not that they receive the word and there's immediate joy. The issue here is that there was no root system. And now when tribulation or persecution arises, especially because of the word, they stumble. If you remember earlier, Jesus said that the sun scorched the very plant and it died and it withered away. There are some that they just want no emotion involved in church whatsoever. There are some that think having altar calls is unbiblical. Yet Jesus saves people in a myriad of ways. You look at the book of Acts and there's 3,000 people that come at once to be saved. So there's different ways that God saves people. The issue is, is there a root system? Is that person digging deep and attaching themselves to Jesus Christ and the word of God? Charles Spurgeon, he says, I want, you to clear, I want you clearly to understand that the fault did not lie in the suddenness of their supposed conversion. Many sudden conversions have been among the best that have ever happened. The problem was not their sudden growth, but their lack of depth. We need that depth within our lives. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, this is a scripture that is so needed, yet so rarely looked at or, or chewed on or meditating on. And especially for those of you that are going through the storms and the trials and difficulties in life today, I pray that this verse would encourage you as you go through tribulation and persecution and things that can perhaps stumble you. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, though not for a little while. If need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, trials and tribulations come and they reveal to us the genuineness of our faith. They reveal to us what's going on. We see that it is because of the tribulation or persecution that arises because of the word of God. There are certain things in God's word that people, once they hear it, they don't like it. Whether it has to do with homosexuality or family or marriage or morals. They hear that word and instead of humble and meek and throwing away filthiness and sin, they cling to the filthiness and sin and they let go of the word of God. There's also trials and persecutions that come. And when people go through difficulty, they can often blame it all on God and walk away. We saw earlier that it was the sun that scorched up this plant because it had no roots. Yet what's needed for a plant to grow? The sun. The very same sun that softens the wax, hardens the clay. 
And you'll have two people. One and both of them had a terrible father in their life. For one, it draws them to press into God. And for the other, they blame God and they run away. Two people, they both lose their job. For one, they, they're broken and they cling to the Lord all the more. Man, I'm going to serve the Lord. I got free time now. I'm going to serve him while I look for a job. The other one gets hard-hearted and walks away. How do we respond to the trials of life? It reveals to us the genuineness of our faith. Finally, in uh, verse 22, we see the third ground, these three not-so-good grounds. He says, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. We see that this ground, this heart, hears the word. This ground, this heart, understands the word. And this ground and this heart even received the word. But the problem and the issue is that there's too much love going on within their hearts. As many scholars say, this ground is just too fertile. So other things begin to grow and outgrow and outpace the word of God and it chokes it out. The first one mentioned here is the cares of this world. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, 31, and 32, it warns us about anxiety and fear and the cares of this world. And in verse 31, Jesus says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. You see, when our love is too enriched in this world and implanted in this world it chokes out our love for heaven and for eternal things when all of our love all of our focus all of our attention is on food and body and clothing and home and retirement and vacation it can quickly choke out the main thing this life it's a vapor 60 years 80 years 100 years god forbid 120 years i don't know what the record is right now right but how long is eternity? It's eternity. And there we find our real life, our actual life. And there are many believers that we are so in love with this world and the cares of this world. God's word is getting choked out within our hearts. Not only is the care of this world dangerous, but even more dangerous is the love of this world. John 15 verse 19, Jesus tells us, if you were of the world... The world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he warns us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is our heart too fertile? It's just, is there just too many loves going on? It's dangerous for any marriage for a man to love more than just his wife, more than one woman. The, the moment there's more women in his heart, more women that he loves, bad things start happening. Vice versa for the wife. If there are other men she loves and she clings to and gives her heart to, bad things are happening. Now, again, I know I'm not that old or kind of old. I'm in this middle gray area. I tell my kids to young people I'm old, but to older people I'm young. I don't know if I'm older or if I'm young. But men that have a best friend that's a woman, that's not their wife, dangerous things are happening. And women that have a best friend that's a man that's not her husband, bad things are happening. 
Because that other love is going to grow and quickly choke out the main love. The last warning here within these thorns is the deceitfulness of riches. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, we find one of the most misquoted scriptures in the Bible. It tells us, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Money in itself is not evil or sinful. Our church... God provides with money, and with money we pay for the air conditioning and the electricity and the rugs and the chairs. Money in and itself is not sinful, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Why, are, why is our politics all broken and messed up? The love of money. Why is our health system all broken and messed up? The love of money. All of this is because of the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And sadly, there are believers that have prayed for the miracle of a job. God gives them the job, and now they let go of the Lord, and all of the focus goes on the job, the money, the business, the 401k, just a dollar more, just a hundred more, just a thousand more, just a million more, just a billion more, and that love doesn't get quenched. We have to be careful that our hearts are not too fertile or that there's not many loves going on in our garden, that we're picking out those weeds that can quickly choke out the main thing. Finally, verse 23, this good ground. He says, but he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some 100, some 60, and some 30. We hear God's word, we understand it, and then we bear fruit. We're not just hearers of his word, but we are doers. Our hearts are not too hard, our hearts are not filled with other things, and our, our hearts are not too shallow. But instead, our hearts are soft towards the things of God's Word. Our hearts are deep where God's Word can come in and grow deep, and our hearts have a single mind, single love, and single focus. And this person, this man, this woman, they bear much fruit. Friend, are you bearing fruit in your life? What is the fruit of your life? Scripture gives us a few different biblical fruits. In Romans chapter 1, verse 13, winning others and leading others to Christ. That's a fruit in the life of a believer. Romans chapter 6, verse 22, holiness in our lives, growing in holiness. That's a fruit in our life. Romans 15, 27, giving to others. That's fruit in our life. God's word says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Yet many believers, I don't know if we tell ourselves that or not, but it's better to give than to receive. Romans 15, 27. A Christ-like character, also known as the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23. Do we have love abounding in us? Peace, joy, kindness, goodness, self-control. Are these things abounding in our lives? Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Good works. It's a fruit in a believer that's growing. And finally, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, praise, worship, and thanksgiving. This is the fruit in the life of the believer. So friend, are any of these things in you and abounding? Are any of these things in you and abounding? And Jesus tells us, hey, for some it's 100-fold, for some it's 60-fold, for some it's 30-fold. For that new baby believer, we can't expect them to be delivering at a hundredfold. They just got saved. 
They're a little seedling that's barely growing. That one fruit sort of tips them over, right? And they're trying to grow it on their own. But as we grow, as we mature, I do believe there should be more fruit in our life. Again, God, he's such an incredible creator. In the middle of a mango, what do we find? A mango seed. And you take that mango seed and you put it in the dirt. And then what pops up a couple months later? A mango tree. You give it a couple years, what does it hopefully bear? More mangoes. And what's in those mangoes? More seeds. And this one seed can begin to reproduce and reproduce and reproduce. And now you have an orchard of mangoes. So for us, I know we like mangoes. Maybe we'll go get shakes after this. But where is our heart today? Is our heart that soft ground, that deep ground, that single mind, that single love, that single focus, so that we are bearing much fruit? And for those of you that maybe you're a little downtrodden, you're a little sad at Christmas, maybe you tried sharing the word and you just got shut down. Hey, no Jesus, he threw the seed out. And there's only one ground out of four that actually received the word. May we continue to not only be hearers of his word, but doers. May we not just be hearers and doers, but may each of us continue to sow the word of God. So hey, worship team, if you guys will come up and we'll pray. And I'll encourage you as we pray, as we close in worship, to ask the Lord, wrestle with him. Say, Lord, where is my heart today? Which one of these four soils am I in the parable of soils? Lord, who am I? Am I the multitude? Service ends. I just leave. I forget about the sermon. I give my rating and I walk away. Or Lord, do I come back to you and I ask you for more and I try to go a little bit deeper and seek you a bit more.